This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 302, A Conversation with Anne Nascenti. Welcome to Comic Shenanigans. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is our Conversation with Anne Nascenti episode, where I sat down with Anne to talk about her career in comics, and specifically we talked, obviously, about Daredevil, because it's hard to talk about her uh, combo career without talking about her immensely important run on Daredevil, as, as well as we also talked about her uh, or her history in the industry in general, and also her recent uh, time working with DC on Catwoman, amongst other books. Um, before we jump into the episode, uh, I didn't even introduce myself for those who've never listened to the show before. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. Uh, we have been doing this interview series that was originally called the Summer Interview Series, uh, which now is going into the fall, so it might be an interview series that will stop when someone says no, or at least when I don't have anyone to talk to anymore, I guess. But so far, we've had some great episodes in the past, so this is a great one uh, where we get to talk to Anna Senti, as I said. Uh, the next episode, episode 304, incidentally, will be with the man who succeeded her on Daredevil, uh, D.G. Chichester, uh, which will be, uh, which is actually, a, I think, a, a, an entertaining look at uh, what the Daredevil look, book was like uh, in the early 2000s, early 2000s, the early 90s. Uh, when it went through a big period of change uh, in the industry, obviously, was going through a change as well. Anyways, back to Anne. So this was a great episode. I really want to thank her for taking time out to uh, to talk to us at Comic Shenanigans. I also want to thank those at the um, the uh, Marvel Masterworks uh, message board. I've thanked them in the past, but they're extremely helpful in developing questions to ask Anne uh, for the interview. Uh, a few people in particular... Uh, I want to thank Badger1701, who'd asked a question about Longshot. Uh, Mr. Ouserdame uh, had a lot of questions, so we tried to work as many of these in there. Uh, there was a bunch of questions that were just kind of came up naturally, and I didn't even end up asking uh, because they would have been kind of uh, redundant at that point. Um, and then there's also a lot of questions from uh, a poster named Dick Mercury, and we have got to most of these types of questions. Um, again, it was we didn't have a lot of time to talk with Anne, but she was very generous with her time anyway. And um, again, I think we we got to talk a lot a lot about some really cool stuff, and so I'm really happy that she had the chance to join us. So, uh, without further ado, after two and a half minutes of a preamble, let's jump right into the episode uh, as we welcome Anne Nascenti to Comic Shenanigans. And welcome to Comic Shenanigans. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for joining us today. So uh, we have a lot of listener questions today, so uh, we'll try to wedge them all in here. But uh, before we get to those, I always want to ask my, uh, my guests, uh, what was your background with comics before entering the industry? Oh, well, I was just a little kid. <clears throat> my job was to be a little kid before I entered the comic industry. <laughs> <laughs> now, what were you reading as a kid? Well, um, there weren't a lot of comics in my home, uh, my parents had a volume of Dick Tracy, like collected Dick Tracy that I read over and over and over and over. Um, there was a Pogo, and uh, I think those two comics were influential on me, but I've, I don't know if it was because they were great or because they were the only two comics in the house. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I, I remember loving uh, the villains in Dick Tracy, you know, Mumbles and Pear-Shaped Man and, you know, all these creepy, creepy villains. That it, was, it was quite um, horrific what would happen, happen to those guys. 
Absolutely. Who is your uh, favorite Dick Tracy villain? Oh, I don't know. I think I just like the shenanigans and the stories and what happened to them. And I think, um, you know, the plus all the early paraphernalia. I mean, when you think now with these new, like, eye watches and, you know, Dick Tracy had his uh, special two-way communication watch. Absolutely. He was so ahead of his times. Indeed he was. Now, how and when did you first start breaking into the industry, or when did it dawn upon you to become part of the comic book industry? Um, well, it was kind of an accident. I, um, I was looking for a job and um, saw an ad in the back of the Village Voice that they needed um, editorial writing type work, and, but it didn't say who the publisher was. So I kind of went in blind, just thinking, gee, I could write whatever. (laughs) And uh, which company was that for? Well, actually, until I found out the name of the company, I assumed, well, who advertises in the back of the Village Voice for a writing job but doesn't list the company? I thought, okay, this is going to be like a job writing like porn or, you know horror movies or you know the kind of thing that back then they everybody was in any field where people are embarrassed by what they were writing and then it was marvel comics oh wow that's an interesting way to uh to advertise for writers <laughs> well you know back then comics were um you know they were a secret little aficionados world and it was not something that you were necessarily I mean, I loved them, and everybody that worked in the field loved them, but it's not like it was um, popular like it is now. The president of the company, you know, I think his name was Jim Galtz, he used to go to his, like, little cocktail parties and tell people he was in children's publishing. He never would have said comic books. (laughs) People are embarrassed of the field. I guess it's come a long way in that regard. Yeah. And I really don't think you'd advertise in the back of the Village Voice anymore. If the Village Voice even still exists, I don't know. <laughs> now, when you first started writing, how would you have described your, your writing method or how you were writing in comics? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Danny O'Neill gave me my first assignment, and uh, I remember thinking, looking around and seeing all the characters that had um, superpowers and thought, well, what if what if the person's power was that they were just really lucky? And that was the first story I did, someone. It was kind of a horror story about somebody who was really lucky and just kind of went down the tubes as a gambler, I think, you know? <laughs> and, um, and that was sort of the first uh, iteration of what went on to become Longshot, a very different character, but the same idea that his superpower was that he was lucky. Now, actually, that brings up uh, a listener question about, you know, what led to the creation of Longshot. Um, So, obviously, you had an interest in this concept of luck. How did that end up becoming its own book? Um, I think it's called Beginner Energy. You know, it's sort of like when you first get into comics and you're like, oh, boy, I get to create something. Um, You know, I, I had... I had written this uh, insanely long and complicated document back then. We would call them the Bible for the character, you know, about like 
all his powers and where he came from and his whole world and Mojo's world and all this stuff. And um, I had been reading a lot of the media theorists at the time, like Marshall McLuhan and Noam Chomsky, and they were all talking about how um, media was all buying each other up and we were were just basically hapless delivery systems for, like, mass media. And, you know, this was a long time ago, so... This is pre-internet days. Mm-hmm. So it was all very prescient. You know, these guys were right about writing about what was happening with media in a very prescient way. So I decided to take all these kind of like lefty, you know, paranoias and turn them into my villain, which was Mojo World, where he basically just kept people addicted to his entertainment complex. Which, now it all just sounds like, yeah, duh. But this was, you know, 30 years ago. <laughs> now, with regards to Longshots, how did he end up getting used in the X-Men titles? I guess you were editing them at the time, correct? I think Chris just fell in love with the character because, you know, he... A lot of Chris's characters were very serious and full of angst, and, you know, they were great for that, and that was what made the X-Men so great, was just these um, powerful inter- interpersonal relationships that were very fraught, and I think he saw Longshot as this kind of bouncy, lighthearted, almost like a foil that would fit well in the X-Men is a contrast to all the heavier characters. I mean, I don't know exactly what he was thinking. You'd have to ask him, but I think I think he just really liked the character and, and just wanted to make him an X-Men. And You know, there wasn't really... We didn't really think about these things too much back then. It was sort of like, can I play with your doll? And I'd be... And you'd say, sure. You know? <laughs> I was like... There was no big committee or anyone. No one really thought these things through. It's just like, I like your doll. Can I play with it for a while? You know? And um, we were on a break. Uh, Arthur and I were working on a graphic novel. It was going to be the next appearance of Longshot. It was the Longshot graphic novel. So, you know, we didn't really care what Chris did with him, you know, until... And then we never finished the graphic novel. What would have happened in that graphic novel? You know, Arthur still has, like, the original thumbnails for it, and, you know, I think I have a Xerox of it, and one, I don't know that I still have the, might have the script somewhere. Um, I think he, it was an adventure where he went to Mojo World, and, and um, the thumbnails are absolutely stunning. I mean, they're just, like, stunning. I could, I could still probably just look at them without knowing what I intended and write a story off them. <laughs> Now, um, how did you come to write Daredevil? Because obviously in the industry, it's hard to mention your name without thinking Daredevil and your amazing run on that book. How did you come to write that character? Well, you know, again, I think back then things we didn't... You know, now I think there are whole committees formed to make decisions like this. But back then it was a lot more like somebody liked your work. They said, you want to write the book? And, you know, Ralph liked my work. Ralph Macchio liked my work, and that was kind of it. You know, he asked me to write it. Uh, and I think I was kind of a little bit getting popular from uh, the Longshot thing. And uh, Longshot was, a, was a, by the way, was like, it was 100% collaborative with uh, Arthur Adams. I mean, 
that what the the great thing about that project it wasn't like a writer coming up with something and then the artist drawing it we spent a lot of weeks just arthur shooting me a billion sketches so a lot of the characters came out of um his imagination hmm. you know i'd say oh we need we need like a bunch of monsters to follow a long shot around and a bunch of monsters from uh you know, Mojo World, and he he would literally send me like ten sheets of monsters. You know, and and one of those was Spiral, and it was just like, I mean, he just came up with this Spiral creature, and then okay, you know, let's use her, let's use this guy with a ram's head, let's use this. You know, we it was a really um, it was really a great process, creative process that I don't know how much that goes on anymore, but where the where you're basically very close touch with the artist and you're creating everything together. Mm -hmm. To go back for a second, I've always been curious, how did uh, the Beauty and the Beast miniseries come about? Was it something that you had pitched or was it something that was kind of given to you? How did that kind of happen? I don't think other than Longshot I ever pitched anything. And again, Longshot was, you know... It was a that was a piece of kismet because Arthur Adams sent in some samples of his work, and Louise Jones was in the was uh, my boss at the time. I think she was editing the X Men, and uh, we just both fell in love with his samples, and that's how that happened. I don't know if I can't even imagine anyone else drawing it. Uh, Beauty and the Beast, I think, was someone came to me and said. Maybe Jim Shooter probably came to me and said, uh, we want to see if romance comics would do well. You know, and they wanted to start a romance comic. And uh, I don't remember whose idea it was, but the idea was, well, let's just take two, you know, two of our characters, two Marvel characters, and instead of creating a new romance character, new romance comic let's just throw two characters together and see if they'll have a romance you know <laughs> and then they then someone no i didn't come up with any of this someone said how about beauty and the beast we'll do a riff on beauty and the beast the beast is a beast you know dazzler's beautiful it's like okay you know i've always, I've always wanted to play with doom can i play with doom you know I mean, it never, it was really like happenstance. I don't think there was that much, and you know, I, I think that miniseries, you know, I, you know, anybody can have a romance, right? Absolutely. No, get it. In hindsight, you'd think, well, gee, they'd never get along. In hindsight, I'd say, well, he's, you know, he's so smart. You know, he's known for being like this intellectual philosopher, book reading guy, and she's kind of a party girl. So it really was a mismatch. You know, I mean, would you, would you, uh, would you set up a, you know, intellectual, geeky, nerdy book reading friend of yours with a disco queen? That kind of sounds like uh, Peter Parker and Mary Jane, though, originally. Yeah, that's true. So maybe somebody was thinking of that. I don't know. But it was that was given to me as, a, as an assignment. You want to take this on. Gotcha. Now, going back to Daredevil for a second, what was it like taking on a book not long after Born Again had happened, which is obviously a 
you know, seminal for the character now. It had just kind of shaken up Matt Murdock's life. What was it like to become the regular writer on Daredevil after that had, that seismic shift had happened? Well, you know, I always like to um, say something glib about that, which is that I was too stupid to really know what I was getting into. I mean, I was new to the business, so I had only I hadn't been there that long, and. Um, you know, I was very. I thought everything that was going on with Marvel Comics was really great. I think there was like Bill Sienkiewicz on Moon Knight and Walt Simonson on Thor. You know, and I think Mary Jo Duffy was writing Star Wars. There was a ton of wonderful projects, like pages just all over the office. You know, Archie had, you know all the new epic books and you know you walked in there and it was just like insanely creative and I think at the time Frank Miller's stuff on Daredevil was just another you know insanely great thing you know I think that you know I wasn't all that aware with how the media was responding to everything but from our point of view at the office there were just tons of pages and tons of artists everywhere working in a in a big bullpen and wandering around the offices you know what i mean it was like it was like this is good look at this hey look at this page hey look at that page you know and everything was kind of included in that and including like what was coming out of larry hama's office he had all these wacky you know uh i think what was some cracked or something and um gi joe i mean, these, i think everything just felt fun so when someone said, here, take over this character, it wasn't like, oh, my God, you know, something seminal just happened. It was kind of like, sure. Probably better that way, right? Huh? Probably better if it's not, um, I guess it's, it's easier to take something on when you don't kind of have the hindsight of knowing, like, this is how it's going to be received later. Like, it's yeah, just I, in the moment. I think you could say that about anything that, you know... At, about any kind of a comic book run, it's, um, you know, especially back then, there weren't, I don't know, maybe there was one publication, there was, uh, you know, you didn't have the internet, remember, so if you didn't buy the comics journal or one of the other little publications, it wasn't like, you know, you'd go to conventions and talk to your fans, you'd get handwritten letters. But there wasn't all this, like, frenzy internet, you know? No. Now, uh, I have um, a lot of questions from one particular user. Um, so he had a few good questions. Uh, his first was, did your story ideas on Daredevil tend to start from a theme or an issue? Uh, I don't remember. I mean, um, it's a good question what comes first, you know, the chicken or the egg. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I think that for me, because I lived in New York, and these are the streets I walked, you know, I was in Hell's Kitchen a lot. I think a lot of my stories came right out of what was happening in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, so if... You know, I would be walking down the street and I'd see someone trying to open up some kind of a storefront and I'd be like, oh yeah, I wonder if, if Matt Murdock, he's supposed to have lots of empathy, what if he was like helping people with legal problems on the streets, you know or, you know, there was a 
people talking about, you know, uh, I, I, I'm trying to remember. I mean, pr- pretty much everything came out of the streets of New York. Oh, there goes some skateboarder kids. They're, they're cute, you know? <laughs> Put them in the comics. You know, it's very much like documentary style, the mise-en-scene of my world. I felt like New York was a family. I was out every night, you know, whether it was in the East Village or Lower Manhattan or Hell's Kitchen. And it felt like a small town to me. There, You know, there was, I knew a lot of people. And I think the stories really just came out of um, the way a documentarian will just look around and look at the streets and get inspired by that. Hmm. Do you, uh, this is a kind of a general question from the same user, but do you think there's enough ambition in superhero comics writing, both then and now? Um, or I think he's maybe talking about the writers in terms of, you know, again, if they're looking at a kind of a larger theme or a larger concept and as opposed to, I guess maybe he's thinking more simplified storytelling in terms of maybe like the golden age where the stories were a little bit simpler and they're getting more complex. And he's, I guess, thinking, is there, is there enough ambition of people writing the superhero comics in terms of what they're saying? that many anymore no I can't really answer that question but uh, I think there's room for everything if it's a story well told if you tell a story of a guy in a diner stirring a cup of coffee you know (laughs) having thoughts and you write that well I'll follow the guy you know what I mean if you if you write a multi-character epic you know, where you have to, like, go backwards and forwards in time and change the nature of man itself. You know, I mean, I'll follow if it's well if it's well done. Is that what you mean by ambition? I'm not really... I'm not sure, because, it's, again, it's, I'm trying to interpret his question. Um, we can move on to the next question, then. Um, this one's a little bit more straightforward, which is... Uh, did you like doing crossover stories for the big events when you were writing Daredevil? You seemed to thrive on those stories, and your Daredevil stories were consistently the best part of those events. Um, well, uh, yeah, I mean, it was really fun. I mean, I, you have to understand that when you're when you're you're doing a month of comic, it's like coming up with a little movie a month, and it's you know you it, it's a lot of work in terms of you have to have um, a, a long reaching narrative for your character like you'll sit down and you'll go okay I want Daredevil to really hit the skids and be destroyed but that's not going to happen for two years you know I don't know how I'm going to get there yet but I'm going to get there you know so right now and then I want to have and then I have a bunch of single issue ideas you know like I want to confront why he wears the devil suit I want to confront you know how Christian is his Christian roots. How much empathy does the guy really have? So you start, you start like testing your character with a bunch of little stories, um, and it's like then there's the rhythm of I'm going to do a small story. Now I'm going to build to a big epic. So you know you're you're working and you have to come up with a with a good story every month, and with a beginning, middle, and theme and all that stuff and. Um, so when somebody says, hey, you know, you want to play? 
in this playground, usually you're like, oh, thank God there's a playground to play in, you know? <laughs> it would be like, and, they used, and the way they did them back then, it was really good. There was just like, you know, New York goes to hell. We don't care how you take New York to hell. If you feel like playing, take New York to hell. And so for me, it was, you know, the traffic and the chaos and the stink and the garbage piling up. And the New York I knew, I said, well, what if I just exaggerate all this and make it, you know, like kind of believable hell. And um, so, you know, everybody plays in that sandbox or the mutant massacre. I think that was one of the first ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but then over at DC, I was just, a, you know, wrote four years of comics for DC. And when when you get, you know, somebody sends around an email, and, you know, Scott Snyder sent around an email um, that was basically, I'm going to put the Joker through hell, you know? And this is how you can play. You know, and, you know, basically he said, you're rating Catwoman. Catwoman doesn't know what Joker's up to, has no idea what Joker's up to, but he's stalking her, you know, and he wants to find out how much uh, she loves Batman. And that's like it. It's just like one line. And then you're just like, great, as long as I don't violate that precept, I can play those are the kinds of crossovers I like because then you're going to get a lot of individual creativity. Hmm. You know, as opposed to crossovers where there's like more complicated marching orders. Absolutely. Um, another uh, listener question, which was um, when you started writing for DC as part of the New 52 line of books, uh, what was it like in terms of, I mean, Basically, his question is about your style was always kind of a wordy, which was more of the 80s style. What was it like working in the modern style, which is generally seems to have a, um, an idea towards a lower word count? Because that's more fashionable these days. So what, how did you kind of take on that challenge of, you know, what modern writing looks like? Well, I mean, I never really, you know, my hemline doesn't go up and down according to fashion. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like... It's like I've written, in the 80s, I wrote some comics that had, like, no words in them. You know what I mean? I, I think it's like, I think there have always been comics that are more silent, especially, like, coming out of Japan. You'd have these, you know, books that were, like, 300 pages, and there were barely any words at all. So not, I'm not so sure where this fashionable, unfashionable thing came from, but I, I don't... I think you can wear you can wear a you can wear a long skirt or you can wear a mini skirt any day of the week. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so like I said, eighties when it was so called fashionable to have a lot of words, I wrote some practically silent comics. You know, um, I don't even think I was aware of that because honestly, comics seem to still have a ton of words in them. So I didn't even no one's no one said it's fashionable to have less words. <laughs> that might be some perception from the outside. I do know that, um, you know, I stepped into something that was already a year underway, the new 52, and um, I didn't really quite get what they were doing. They said, well, I started on Green Arrow. They said, well, Green Arrow is really young, so he hasn't had any of the experiences Green Arrow has had yet, so he's kind of a jerk, and 
he's not the seasoned lefty, um, you know, of the Denny O'Neill, Mike Grell era. He's never been married. You know, so, so write a young guy. And, you know, my first thought was like this really young, immature skirt chaser has millions and millions of dollars. And that's kind of, you know, it, it, it felt like he would blow it. So I knew right away that I was like, well, I'm going to just have him lose all his money. But again, it's like, I'm going to take a year to do that. And so I had him go off on these adventures that a young man, you know, tempted by triplets. I mean, come on, you know. <laughs> it's like, I also did not like all that armor. So I was always like, can I, I was always trying to do stories where he would lose some of his armor because I felt it was a little too much like Iron Man or something, you know, tech guy with lots of gadgets. So I was always like, okay, he loses that big boxy, you know, arrow box, and I don't want him ever to get it back, you know, because <laughs> I was trying to make him kind of strip him down, make him a little leaner and meaner, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, you know, I was looking at the tech world and what his company was trying to do, and I came up with the storyline that, you know, a Chinese mastermind would scam him out of his company. And so that's what happened. And um, so I was working on getting rid of all his... <laughs> I was, like, trying to... He had these, like, canisters on his hips that he never used. And I was like... And the way the artist was drawing them was kind of short and stocky. And I was like, you know, these canisters really don't look good. So I was always telling my editor, Joey, can we have him, like, lose them? There's nothing in them, you know? <laughs> and um, But they were like, no, no, you can't do that. And then, uh, but they did let me take all his money away. And then when I left the book to move over to Catwoman, there was a new writer coming on. And I was like, oh, shit, you know, I just made him. I just made him broke. You know, do you want me to have him find all his money again before you take over? And the writer went, nah, leave him broke. (laughs) So, you know, otherwise I would have had to, like, done, like, another story where suddenly he gets all his money back. But I didn't have to do that. What was it like writing Catwoman? I mean, Catwoman is, um, she's a ton of fun. But I think, again, there was, because the new 52, the idea was that she wasn't, again, like, Green Arrow wasn't Green Arrow yet. He was, like, a young dude with a lot of money and toys. Catwoman wasn't really Catwoman yet, or so, you know, they told me. They just said, look, she's, she hasn't had all these big um, storylines. You know, Catwoman's known for all her fabulous heists, you know. So they wanted me to to take her to where she was really young and really just starting to learn how to be a thief. So I had her make a lot of mistakes because I figure you're, you know, you're a young girl and your first heist, you're going to kind of mess up a little bit. So, you know, she did a heist and got Batman got angry and she ended up putting all the paintings back again. You know, she did a she did a um there was a penguin storyline where she thought well let me just pit all my enemies against each other and a lot of people ended up dying and you know so it was kind of like she was a new thief and i think that idea is kind of hard for a reader that's been reading catwoman comics for 
60 years of Catwoman comics. 60 years. And suddenly they want her to just start out as a brand new thief. But, you know, I had fun doing it. And after Catwoman, I guess you worked on Clarion. What was uh, what was that experience like? And again, was that something you pitched or something that was kind of offered to you? No, no, it was offered to me. It was the idea, I think, was, um, well, we all love Kirby. And um, it was an, a Dan DiDio loves Kirby. And, you know, I think he knew I was like a, you know, Jack Kirby is king, you know. I just love everything that guy did. And um, so does Dan. And I think they wanted to see how um, younger characters, they wanted some kind of like a young millennial comics I guess for lack of a better word so they were coming up with like the really young Batgirl with Gotham Academy where you'd have these young girls just discovering that they had powers and you know they they, they thought of Clarion as part of that you know he's, he's kind of a young uh, goth wizard sort of um and you know, I just looked at the I just looked at the original demon issues, and I thought, man, this is a crazy character. What was Kirby thinking? You know, it was like this smirky kind of like he had this like smirk on his face. You just wanted to slap it off. And then Trevor McCarthy, who was the artist, the two of us just went nuts. I mean, Trevor. It was kind of reminded me of what uh, of back in the days of working with um, Arthur on Longshot, where you have a really good relationship with your artist and you're throwing each other ideas. And um, Trevor found the original, a picture of the original kid that Kirby based Clarion on. Oh wow! <laughs> you know? So we both had that up on our drawing board, and you know, and we were just thinking about what is magic. We didn't want to do like witchcraft magic you know we didn't want to do harry potter um and i and i just started to we just started talking about what feels like magic to us and to me it was like the internet and technology and my iphone and how i'm addicted to it and it's got some kind of magical properties because if i lose it i panic you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then i was reading all these um tech sites, you know, and they were like, well, we can implant this in your neck and it'll do that, and there's ingestible tech and drones and swarms and nanotechnology and, you know, so I decided that that would be, we created these tech wizards and that we would do a whole different kind of a magic book where where it was, it was the, it was the insidious but very loved and, um, tech magic so we created all these witches and wizards and we had a blast and uh no one bought it and it died <laughs> i guess it answers my question which was uh was it always meant to be kind of a, a shorter run series or was it originally pitched as an ongoing i mean, no, it was pitched as an ongoing but i mean it really just didn't sell i don't know we we had a blast we loved it i look back on those issues and i still think they're really fun issues and Trevor and I, uh, I mean, there's so much in those issues that it's like, you know, we mapped out the sick, the, uh, the first arc so that in the panel borders, in the the first issue are clues as to what's going to happen. I mean, that's how much crazy thought we put into it. There's a, 
when by the time he meets um, in the second issue, by the time he meets um, the uh, the female witch who doesn't even know what her power is yet, she has like Rapunzel type hair, and in the panel borders in the first page, they're made out of hair. <laughs> and as you're as you're reading the comic, there's like little tech nanobugs hair there's all this stuff that is basically these subliminals for the tech wizards and um zell who is a short for rapunzel the all the characters that he's gonna meet like issue two issue three issue four you know all the way down to like seeding the appearance of um Tickle, his cat you know so we so we we did a lot of very like witchy heady magical thinking just it to, in the visuals because we wanted there to be a subliminal sense of foreshadowing and um, it all builds and builds and builds and builds and then of course you know the issue the issues were only selling like twenty thousand copies which is like means not enough you know. Mm-hmm. So we were, I think we were told after issue one that because of the numbers, we were doomed, you know? <laughs> so, um, so we basically had to take what we had thought were going to be years of stories and smush them into six issues. So you definitely have that by the last issue. It's like, what the hell, you know? She's introduced 50 characters and barely gotten to develop their personalities, and it's then it's all just going away. Mm. But that's comics. You know, you just kind of roll with it. For sure. Um, and another listener question was, uh, having tackled short stories in Marvel Comics Presents and Classic X-Men, did you enjoy the challenge of writing such brief stories? Did you feel constrained or liberated or neither by the restrictions of that form? definitely more difficult to write a six or eight page story than it is to write a but at the same time two of my favorite stories that I've ever written um, in fact one of them was um, for Marvel Fanfare it was an angel story that David Mazzucchelli drew and you know again that's an 80s story with hardly any words in it but it was um you can, you can, I think, you can pay attention to something smaller in a short story. Mm. So in this case, it was just an angel story where an old lady that kind of doesn't feel like there, she has much um, to live for sees an angel feather fall in her backyard. And it's basically, it's a, there's a huge battle going on in the sky someplace with the X-Men, which, you know not specific to any story, but you can imagine there's always a battle going in the, on in the skies, right? So this particular story was one moment when Angel fell out of the sky and lay in someone's backyard before he recovered and flew off again. So I, we just took that moment and made that a little short story, and it's one of my favorite stories. Hmm. Um, and then I also did a short story with David Aja, which maybe is my favorite thing I've ever done, which is, um, you know, Daredevil sitting in a bar, which is something I always like to do, <laughs> have Daredevil sit in bars, <laughs> and have, you know, because pubs, especially old 
old man pubs. There's people that are very lonely, and they but they might have lived some really rich, wonderful life, and no one takes the time to talk to them. But sometimes, you know, between battles and your head hurts and, you know, you're a superhero and your head's all messed up over something, you know, you wander in a pub to get a whiskey. And it was one of those moments when Daredevil wandered in a pub to get a whiskey. And, you know, he ends up learning. He ends up meeting the meeting a girl, meeting um, an old fighter bartender that knew his his dad's um fighting years and um and then bullseye shows up and it's a short story and it's i love it i love and of course all the stories all the short stories i did with john bolton again it was like well let's explore one tiny little aspect of nightcrawler say and you know you're not gonna have to have the thing climax in some big battle and so you can kind of do a little breather. It's quite fun. I mean, I think it would be great if the if they brought back that form. Maybe they they have and put out more anthologies. I think they've had difficulties, unfortunately, selling them. But I do enjoy them because, as you said, like it allows writers to tell different types of stories that don't fit into the regular kind of twenty-two page format. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff, you know, anthologies, and I think Clarion was like, you know, stuff that's really good that it doesn't, if it doesn't get a big sales push, or it doesn't have a big, you know, superstar character in it, it, they just fall through the cracks, you know, and it's, that, but I mean, what I like is that years later, people kind of discover these little gems, you know, and go, hey, you know. That was a cool story. Uh, another uh, listener question was, uh, do you have a favorite artistic collaborator? Um, I mean, I, I, I think I've been really lucky. I've worked with like some of the best in the business. So not favorite so much as um, I, every, every artist has different things they want to do. I usually have one of those conversations very early on. What do you want to draw? You know, <laughs> and like literally, I think with Trevor, it was like I want to do wacky panel layouts. You know, <laughs> and so we ended up like I ended up trying to um, have every page have some kind of a second story going on, either in the background or in the panel border, so he would get a chance to do his wacky panel layouts. You you take your cues always from the artist, you know. Um, you know, Arthur, Arthur Adams wanted to draw monsters, so I'd make sure there were plenty of monsters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, really, it's a two-way conversation, and it's um, you know, uh, you spend a lot of time asking your artist what they want to draw, and then sometimes there'll be things. Um, uh, I think I was working on what was it? I was working on Katana, and the artist called me and said. I saw this really cool movie where the whole fight takes place on the scaffolding as they repair the Statue of Liberty or something. And can we do that? And I was like, sure. And then came up with a scenario where there was this, where there was this dragon temple that was undergoing like renovations. So it had all those planks around it. And, um, 
you know, sometimes you sometimes the story is really just the artist wants to draw people falling off planks around a dragon, and so you go, <laughs> okay, I'll work that in. <laughs> so I think people think the writer writes and the artist draws, but if you have a good relationship with an artist, the artist is like tossing things at you, like I want to draw this, you know. Mm-hmm. Or they'll send a sketch to you. Who do you think this guy is? And you're like, oh, cool. I think. You know, he's like a swag dealer from the future. <laughs> you know, let's do that. <laughs> uh, do you think of any of your of the artists you've worked with? Like, is there any particular artist you think uh, got your writing in a certain way? Like, actually, kind of got you in a in a in terms of bringing your story to life more than some of but, the others? I think pretty much. I know. I never had a. I never had a bad experience with an artist. I think they always... I mean, sometimes it's a language barrier. Like, I think when I was working with Harvey, who was from the Philippines on Green Arrow, there was, you know, there was huge translation problems translating my English plots into um, his language. So there were a lot of stuff came back in the art pages that was just a mistake and then you just have to write around it you know what i mean Mm -hmm. there was never any time i think the 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 very first page was supposed to be a drone that looked like an insect bird and it came back a real bird and then you just kind of had to go okay well let me just figure out how to write around that and you know but then i i did catwoman with um rafa sandoval and i think that for some reason even though he didn't speak English and I didn't speak Spanish, or rather we each spoke a little bit of each other's language, somehow we both had we had a huge amount of fun, even though we never really communicated very often. This one was just this scrappy, sporty, you know, she's very sporty. She, she didn't wear the high heels. She wasn't like, um, she was like an athletic sporty catwoman, you know, rather than a catwoman that sat and purred and schemed, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Which fit, fit the idea of bringing catwoman back to before she was a mature woman who purred and schemed. You know, this was like a teenage catwoman, you know, so I mean, I don't know, I think especially the Gotham Underground stories, the Penguin, the, the Penguin War, and then going into the Gotham Underground stories, those stories you know, I think they hold up and we had a blast because it's really just two collaborators getting Catwoman, Catwoman's scrappy young energy and it just worked. You know, I think it worked. And um, certainly JR, John Romita Jr., you know, he was in New York and we both knew New York and so there was a, there was a great amount of simpatico for New York stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the same deal like you know he would toss a character at me I think you know um, Shotgun was a character that came out of a conversation we had Um, you know and he loved like Bushwhacker a guy who could turn his arm into a gun that was another character that Johnny really loved (laughs) the wild boys you know there were certain and of course Typhoid Mary Typhoid Mary was visually based on the girl he was dating at the time Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure. I just remember, yeah, she was tall and she had, like, 
big hair and you know and he uh so i mean i think that we were johnny and i were really in sync um so yeah i mean i've had i've had i'm probably leaving some amazing collaboration out that i'll remember after we get off the phone (laughs) (laughs) but um a lot of comics have a time like when i did someplace strange with john bolton it was he had two kids I think maybe there was a certain frustration sometimes with um, not know, not having enough comics around that you can safely hand to a kid. And um, we came up with this story called Someplace Strange that was really like a, a comic written for his kids, and his kids are in it. Oh, really? Yeah, they play, um, and their names are the names the kids gave themselves, Zebra and... Uh, I forget the other name, and a lot of it just came out of conversations with uh, John and Lily and his wife about his kids and what they were afraid of, and ended up doing this kind of Alice in Wonderland thing where they go on a boogeyman hunt through their closet and end up in a completely different world. But you, their characters are revealed in these in this kind of alternate dimension. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that book was a real great collaboration because it was the actual family. John Bolton, his wife, and his kids are, are, are the leads in the story. <laughs> Have you written or thought about doing more books for children or like that are more safe for children in that kind of way? It's, it's actually kind of a passion of mine, and I haven't figured out how to do it yet. <laughs> but I would really, I really want to write... Um, comics for young not just girls boys and girls I, I really want to write for that age group mm-hmm. um, and I have a couple projects in the works that I'm hoping something will come from that I'm working with uh, I'm working with uh, girls in their 20s that are musicians turning their you know turning their actual personas their real life personas working with an artist and writer teams to develop stories for like you know music comics for like 20 year olds and another project that's for um younger girls but yeah i mean my dream is always i've always i've done plenty of tough guy stuff now i want to (laughs) do some stuff for the little girls you know? Absolutely, um, and it's where me too. I meet people and their kids with their kids, and they're like, "My kid is really into comics. Can he have some of your comics?" And I'm like, "I'm not going to give a kid typhoid Mary. That stuff is crazy. <laughs> you know, it's like going to rot the kid's brain. You know." So, <laughs> and I look around and I'm like, "Man, I have nothing I can give a little kid to read." Yeah, someplace strange. I don't have that much for kids, so that's mm-hmm. really what I want to do next. Uh, another listener question. Uh, they asked. Uh, this is a bit of a long one. Uh, during '93 and '94, you were simultaneously or around the same time writing Kid, Kid Eternity, the Typhoid stories in uh, Marvel Comics Presents, a three-issue arc in Spectacular Spider-Man with Typhoid Mary, and also Venom: The Madness. What was this experience like writing three very different types of stories and characters? Uh, and were you able to find points of connections between those books, and did they feed off each other? Or do you compartmentalize the writing process? 
Well, actually, that's a pretty good question because that lineup of comics, they're all completely mind-bending, insane people comics. You know, it's like Kitty Turn, I mean, Typhoid Mary, I used to have a rule about Typhoid Mary. If you're going to write a Typhoid Mary story, you really should be driving the reader crazy. <laughs> like, that's the, that's, you know, it's almost like, you know, if you were to, if you were going to do it in terms of Fight Club, you know? What was the number one rule of Fight Club? I don't even remember what it was. Wasn't that you don't talk uh, about Fight Club? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't talk about Fight Club. But the number one rule of, for the Typhoid Fight Club is, you know, drive the drive all the characters in the story, drive the reader, drive yourself insane, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, those stories were supposed to be so wacky that even I as the writer often didn't know what was going on so um, and I think like what you said earlier about um, Peter Parker and Mary Jane you know how that was kind of a mismatch you know Peter Parker and the when we were talking in terms of Beauty Mm -hmm. and the Beast absolutely I remember Yeah, you said something about, uh, well, that's like Mary Jane and Peter Parker. And I think that at the time I thought, well, you know, Mary Jane and Peter Parker, they're married now, you know, and they have this happy little life. What would it be like if typhoid came to visit, you know? And, um, you know, it was kind of a feminist story because typhoid at her root is kind of a feminist character. You know, she's always like, why are you cooking and cleaning and staying home and waiting, waiting, waiting for Peter Parker to come home? Your husband lies to you. Your husband is never home. And you're sitting here and you're cooking and cleaning, you know, and she just rips apart Mary Jane's world and makes her kind of think about all that stuff. Because Mary Jane was like a 50s housewife at that time, you know, in the comic. And um, so typhoid is like a bomb you throw into someone's world, you know, like that really every typhoid story should be a bomb, you know. What if I, you know, took a hand grenade and threw it into that room? Um, so that was the typhoid, and then Venom the Madness, I think that was just like, um, I'm trying to remember, was that a Peter Parker story? I'm trying to remember, I don't remember that one that well. I mean, Venom... Venom is a, is a, you know, was this alien thing that took over Peter Parker, you know, so um, I, can, I actually am trying to remember, I can't even remember what happened in that story, but it was yet, that was another really, you know, where you approach the story of like, I'm really going to twist people's brains in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks, it looks like this, Venom the Madness is the... Uh the miniseries where uh, Venom ended up fighting the Juggernaut? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was tons of fun. That was just supposed to be a hoot. That was just like a romp, you know? Like, And, I mean, the character Venom, this alien, snaky alien, shadowy thing, is just super fun to, to write and to draw. I think it was, wasn't it Kelly Jones drew it, I think? Yes, it was, yeah. You know, artists just love drawing that character, and really the more you can use that character in new visual ways the happier your artist is so um we had a lot of fun with that i made one of my friends i think his name was eddie brock right yep i made i made one of my friends um venom's girlfriend 
<laughs> and I remember getting nervous at some point. Wait, when I finish this series, I hope nobody kills her off. And then Kid Eternity was kind of, well, it was, you know, Karen Berger was this totally visionary, um, you know, the editor of the Vertigo comics. And um, she was just like, do whatever you want. You know, you obviously have a wacky imagination, just like, let it rip. So that was an amazing opportunity in working with Sean Phillips, who was, you know, a design genius. I think his his thing was always just give me something that's wacky to design, you know. Um, you know, he just wanted he just wanted to have something that he could get into in an illustrator sense of designing the pages. And he also, I think, wanted to try a different art style for every story. So, you know, I did an on-the-road story so that he could do kind of just like street mise-en-scene and, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was a very creative time in comics. I mean, they they were letting people do whatever they wanted. Mm-hmm. And then I think right after that, the whole industry collapsed, right? Yeah. So what led you to leave the industry? Um, I think it was a combination of there wasn't much work. Like, you'd be getting, like, you know, you wouldn't be getting calls to do work anymore. And, you know, I was working on a <coughs> a lot of stories that just kind of vanished. And But at the same time, I was studying um, international affairs and journalism and starting to do more journalism. And I was starting to work a lot in film. I was writing screenplays. I had, I had a screenplay that was getting produced and made into a film. So, I mean... I already kind of had other careers, so I just kind of started taking, saying yes to more film and journalism as the comic book work dried up. And then how, how did you kind of come back to the industry for the New 52 as part of that? Um, well, I, Bob Harris and Dan DiDio and uh, Bobby Chase, you know, they, <coughs> I don't even, I don't know, I don't know what happened, I imagine things happen behind the scenes people have meetings right and they go whatever happened to Innocenti you know well I have her number (laughs) (laughs) I have a feeling it's as simple as that you know and Jim Lee I knew Jim Jim Lee was uh, Jim Lee and I had done uh, some work together um, which I had I had kind of he surprised me he was interviewing me on stage at WonderCon I think it was and he, like, totally punked me. It was like, he says, well, you know, you and I have worked together. And I said, no, we didn't. And he said, yeah, we wrote a story together. And I said, I said no, we didn't. And then he pulls out this old X-Men Phoenix Jean Grey story. And there it was. Jim and I had done a comic together that I had forgotten about. <laughs> So, I mean, Jim was involved in the company, and uh, Bob Harris, you know, I had, Bob Harris, I think, was my assistant when I was the editor of the X-Men. Bob was, um, Bob and I were friends, and um, I don't know how these things go. Somebody says, hey, let's see if she's still around, and then they call you. Um, and I'll, I'll uh, wrap up in just a moment, but a, a few more listener questions. Uh, one is, uh, the New Mutants Summer Special is an incredibly pointed, incredibly vicious takedown of media culture. How in the world did you convince Marvel to publish it? 
You know, that's a funny thing because um, there is a story that I have no idea if it's true or not. When we were going to press on that issue, which, yes, takes down the whole idea of media, you know, media conglomerate, you know, media buying up media until you have, basically, you don't have a fair journalistic universe anymore because, you know, Murdoch or whoever owns everything you're reading. Um, So, uh, and I think at the time it was the Gannett Group or something, there was this particular corporation that was buying up all media. So, yeah, I did a goofy Mojo World story because Mojo is the guy that tries to control your entire stream of information and keep you addicted to whatever crap he's spilling out. Um, So it seemed like a perfect kind of story. And then there's... There was a story circulating. Suddenly, none of no stores had enough copies of that issue. It sold out really fast. And then I found out that the print run had been way cut down. And uh, apparently, somebody high up at Marvel, and this is literally is just a story I heard at the time, got a load of the fact that. We were, Marvel was printing a story that was basically an anti-corporate story and they chopped the print run down. Hmm. Which is like, I have no idea if that really happened. I have no idea. This is what somebody told me. But, surprise, surprise, that there weren't many printed and it's hard to find. So maybe there's some truth to it after all? I guess maybe. I mean, you know, somebody was either having a paranoid thought, you know, or it actually did happen. Uh, same. The same listener asks, uh, which of your classic X-Men backups was your favorite, if you have one? Uh, I don't know that I had a favorite. I'd have to. I'd have to. Um, I'd have to pull them all out and look at them again, and then say, "Oh yeah, that was my favorite." <laughs> but I mean, I think it was fun. You know, it was basically it was me and John Bolton saying, "Who do we want to torture?" You know, hey, let's let's. I want to draw the White Queen. Okay. You know, a lot of this stuff comes from the artist, really. You know, I feel like drawing Nightcrawler, okay. And then you think about the character and you think about how can I torture them? How can I find a little aspect of their personality that hasn't been explored before? How can I throw them up against a wall so that, you know, to see how they react? So I think we did a we did a fun Wolverine story. Um, you know, every every issue we just... John and I would talk and just say, let's play with this one or that one. But I don't know if I have a favorite. I'd really have to read through them all again. Okay. And our our last question, uh, again, this is a little longer, is uh, one of the things, now this is from this uh, listener's uh, perspective, one of the things that makes your work so affecting and alive is its surprising amount of humor, all types of humor, whether it be slapstick and wordplay, to witticism, sarcasm, satire, etc. Is this a conscious effort to balance out your willingness to look at the darker areas of life, and do you enjoy writing humor? Well, yeah, I mean, I think I'm basically a goofy kind of a girl, you know? I mean, I'm definitely... um, a goofball so you know in my everyday life I'm always goofing around so I guess it's just my personality I'm definitely you know I'm not a very serious type <laughs> your writing would but, say otherwise right <laughs> well I mean 
I guess I feel like I feel passionately about certain things and then I write about them. But then, you know, it is a comic book. It is entertainment. And, you know, I think that you you make you make the, the little tiny points that you want to make with humor. You know, I think it's a mix. You want to have something with roots so that you feel like the comic has depth. But you want to you want to lure people into the story with something a little more lighthearted. So you want to have you want to have both. Um, I don't know how successful I ever was at anything. Like I say, I have a couple stories that I'm proud of. But for the most part, us writers, us artists, whatever, we just look back and we just go, all we can say is everything we did wrong. You know. <laughs> Like, they reprint something, and I'm like, who wrote this? That was a crazy person. You know, <laughs> what was I thinking? You know, or you look back, and somebody, you know, reprints something, and you're just like, oh, man, he, that's what that should, that's what should happen to the climax, or, you know. I mean, I'm always looking back at everything that I could have done better. Is there one storyline you wish you could rewrite? If there was only one? Um... I mean, there are certain characters... I guess it's more like there are certain characters. I would like to see what I would do with Typhoid Mary now. I mean, I would love to do a Typhoid Mary story. I don't know if I'll ever get the chance. Um, I would love to do another... I did this thing for DC called Cast Shadows that was a a Poison Ivy story. Hmm. And um, I just love that story. It was with uh, John Van Fleet and... um, I think it was a really successful comic. I mean, it just had the right mix of, like you're saying, seriousness and humor. And I'd love to write her again. So I think it's more, um, especially female characters. I mean, I've written a lot of male characters. And, um, you know, I'd love to, I guess, typhoid, poison ivy, villainesses. I'd I'd love to take on some villainesses. So I get yeah I guess it's more like who would I like to what characters would I still like to write? Any final thoughts for our listeners? Uh, I don't know. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank, thank you for, for those of you who liked my comics and those of you who didn't like them. That's okay too. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Okay, you have a good day, Adam. You too. Bye. And that was our conversation with Anne Nascenti. Thanks for listening to Comic Shenanigans. You can email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. This is Adam Chapman signing off. Thanks again for joining us. Bye-bye.